0: Amen. What a difference grace makes. What a difference Christ makes in our lives. What a difference it makes to have hope. I know about you, but maybe this weekend and this week you've been a bit overwhelmed with headlines of sad things that have happened in our country this weekend. uh, The headline is about a man by the name of Jeffrey Epstein who uh, was a multimillionaire and uh, had a lot of power and influence and a lot of opportunities to do things that some of us can only dream of doing. And then uh, it came to light, people were accusing him of sexual harassment and even of sex trafficking so he was put in prison and was awaiting judgment and then this weekend he was found dead in his cell. And there's controversy around that and the idea of justice and and all of that, but but as I think about that, I, I think about how sad it is for someone that had such great opportunity, such great success, at least in the world standards, to have arisen to such heights and then to have to end in such a horrible way. And then to know that he's not the only one that took advantage of his power and position to to take advantage of, of girls and women, but that there are over 50 prominent people in the Me Too movement who have been accused of doing the same kind of thing. Uh, Hollywood producers and movie actors and uh, television network anchors and politicians and sometimes even religious leaders who who have taken advantage of their position, abused their power, and now after having achieved such great heights in their careers, end them in shame and in legal troubles or like Jeffrey Epstein in death in a prison cell. And we think about the fact that what if all of our secrets were to come to light? And I want to just say a brief word, a brief parenthesis here before I continue. We we are aware that when we gather here together, this is a family-friendly worship service. And so we usually try to keep it pretty G. But there may be some PG-13 moments today because of the nature of the passage. And I just want to do that as a parental advisory uh, that, that we'll uh, touch on some themes that are a little sensitive, but, but, but I want to tell you, uh, at least in my opinion, that as much as our children hear about sex on the radio and on television and the internet and video games and at the schoolyard, that it's important that from time to time they would hear it from the pulpit and from God's perspective and what the Bible has to say about it. And so uh, I, I know that uh, I, this is a difficult uh, topic, but one that we come to today. Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew ten twenty six, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What we do in secret will sooner or later come to the light. And I'm sorry to say to you, as we've been following the story of David, we've looked at many wonderful stories in the life of David. Stories that have encouraged us. His faith, uh his victory over Goliath, his his way of dealing with his enemy Saul, his his military might, his wisdom. There's so much about David's life that, that we admire and that we respect, but I'm sorry to tell you that if David had been living in 2019, he'd be on the list of the Me Too movement. He would have been accused of taking advantage of his power and authority to get his way. So today's message is called The Giant That Slew David. It's a sad story, but it's one which the Holy Spirit has preserved for us in the scriptures. One of the things that I appreciate about the Bible is that when it tells us about the lives of people, it doesn't just tell us the nice things, it tells us the ugly things. And I don't know about you, that may be a little bit discouraging for some of you, but it is encouraging to me. Because when it tells the story of people and it gives both their victories and their virtues as much as their flaws, then I'm reminded that we're all people in need of mercy that we're all people in need of grace. And so, I know that often when you come to church on Sunday morning, you wanna hear an encouraging word. I know you wanna hear something that lifts you up so that you can continue with the rest of your week. Today, it's gonna be a heart sermon. Today, is gonna be a, a sermon that speaks some difficult truths, but truths, I think, nevertheless, that need to be spoken. So, go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, <clears throat> beginning with verse one. And it reads like this, 2 Samuel 11 verse one, it says, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. I have four things that I want to highlight from this story that I think apply to David's life and apply to our life today. And the first one is that the sin giant is stealth. Had the temper shown up to David's palace and said, hey, I'm here to help you commit murder and adultery today, David would have said, go away. I don't want to do that. I love God and I would never want to do that. But that's not usually how the tempter works. He is sneaky. He sneaks in through the back door and tries to, to come where we are not aware and by the time we know it, he is there. The scripture tells us that David uh, had, had stayed in Jerusalem at the time that the kings go out, off to war, the springtime. You know, kings and, and armies would, would not go out to war in the winter, obviously. But when the springtime came, they would march out and they would defend their territories or they would do whatever they set out to do. And the Bible tells us here that many times, surely, David had gone in the springtime with his army. He had led his people out into battle. He had been right there as a leader that God called him to be. But the Bible tells us that on this occasion, David did not go with his army. He sent them out into the conflict of battle while he stayed in the comfort of the palace. And that's where his troubles began. He sent people out while he stayed back. The story tells us that one evening, as David perhaps couldn't sleep very well, he was walking around the rooftop of his palace where he was able to see uh, the, the homes around him. and uh, And it makes me think that David wasn't even tired enough to go to sleep. Uh, what a gift it is. When we're so constructively occupied in our work or, in our, or our leisure, that when we hit the sack, we go to sleep. That's a gift, isn't it? That you're able to rest, and that when you can't rest, you can't sleep, because sometimes that happens that, that you have a plan to constructively use that time. But, but David didn't have a plan He wasn't used to staying back. He was idle. And that's where the tempter finds a crack in the door. I heard a saying a long time ago, and you're probably familiar with it, that an idle mind is a devil's workshop. Sin is a giant that that can take us down, but it's a stealth giant. It sneaks up on us. Sin is, is waiting outside the door just, just uh, for the first opportunity to have us. That's what God told Cain. Do you remember that story when, when Cain was angry because Abel had, had pleased God with his sacrifice and, and there was this anger brewing up in Cain's heart and God warned Cain in Genesis chapter four, verse seven. It says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door, God warns Cain, before he killed Abel. The, 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 the sin giant is a stealth giant and we must be aware of that. Let me just mention to you that we must be careful. There, In my book, there are no petty sins. There. There are just small opportunities for the devil to come in. You know, I've had people, I have guys that come to me, married guys, that say, you know, uh, there's this lady at work that is having marital problems and, and I'm counseling her. And I said, look, get away from that thing as fast as you can. Find another lady to help her or, or minister as a couple. But but if you ever, uh, as someone from the opposite sex, and you're married, and you're working with someone that's having marital problems, listen. That may look innocent, but it's dangerous territory. It is the small steps. It is the small things, the small sins like lust and greed and anger and bitterness and and bigotry and racism and 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 gossip. Those little things are. Are, are ways in which the enemy will get his foot in the door. It's a stealth giant. And secondly, the sin gateway is slippery. Once you open the door to sin, you will find yourself quickly going down a slippery slope. There was nothing wrong with, with David taking a walk on his rooftop, uh, that's completely fine. There's nothing wrong with him having seen Bathsheba bathing down there. He, he, he didn't make that decision, it wasn't <coughs> his fault. It wasn't his fault that she was beautiful. Up until that point, there there was no wrongdoing. The first look is unavoidable sometimes, but it's the second look and the third look that becomes our responsibility. It's the staring and the lusting that opens the door to sin. Someone said to me a while back, you cannot help when a bird flies over your head. But you can keep it from building a nest on it. David didn't just take one look. He looked again and again, and he didn't settle with looking. He went further. Let's continue to read our story in verse three. It says, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. David opened the door to sin. His first step onto this slippery slide was staring lustfully. The second step was to send someone to find out about her. If he had had Facebook, he would have been stalking her, I'm sure. He had no business finding out about it. He was a married man. He, he had no business inquiring about another woman. But it led to the third step. He sent people to get her. And that was so wrong on several co- counts. The first one is uh, because David's servants had already informed him that she was married. So, so here the king was bringing someone to his bedroom that belonged to someone else. The second thing that's wrong with this is that her husband was one of David's military officials. Think about that. Her husband was in the battlefield and David was back here trying to have his wife. Thirdly, he treated Bathsheba as an object. He didn't care about what she wanted. He didn't know her. He didn't know who she was. She became an object for him. Fourthly, he abused his position as king to get his way. God had given David so much power and influence and his power and influence was to be used for the benefit of God's people, but David now was abusing that power for his own benefit, his own pleasure in a selfish way. Notice how he just goes down this slippery slope and and he hadn't hit bottom yet, as we'll learn from the rest of the story. Maybe the first steps looked innocent enough. He, he looked and, and he inquired, but they were the beginning of a downward spiral. That's part of the enemy's, enemy's deceit in our lives is to begins to say, you know, what's wrong with a little bit of this or a little bit of that? You know, you talk, you, when you confront people that are doing something wrong, and they say, well, what's wrong with it? And sometimes I want to say to them, well, what's right with it? But because the enemy begins to say, "Look, you know, just you can just take a liberty here and a liberty there, a little looking, a little flirting," I, I, it reminds me of, of, Frodo in Lord of the Rings. You know, he had that ring, and, and 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 he was so committed to making sure that he destroyed that ring. And from time to time, he would put the ring on when he was in trouble, and the ring would help him to disappear so that he would save his life. But uh, but but. It didn't, it, it didn't take long for the ring to try to lure him into the evil that stood behind the ring and he knew that he had to make all the effort possible to take the ring back off or he would, he would go down like the rest. A, a, just a little bit more could have been detrimental to him. The third thing that we see in this passage is the goal, the sin goal is sin. You know, when sin arrives in our lives, it sort of presents itself as our friend. Hey, I'm here to give you a good time. After all, you deserve it. You've been working hard. You're always thinking of everybody else. It's your turn to have a good time. Sin presents itself as, I'm your friend here. I'm the one that's looking out for you. If, I, if you don't look out for yourself, who will, right? But the risk of sin here And this is a risk of being overworked and overstressed. I think here are the two extremes that I would warn you about. On the one side, idleness is a dangerous place to be. Where you're not doing anything constructive, whether it's work or leisure, and your mind is idle, the enemy will take advantage of that time to plant seeds and the temptation will come. That's a dangerous place to be. Be careful of an idle mind. And then on the other side, the other extreme, I would be careful of being overworked and overstressed. Because when you're overworking, over stress, you're spiritually drained, and you become vulnerable to sin. When you're overworking, over stress, you're, you're not living in a place of faith. There's no balance in your life. God wants you to have rest, and He wants you to have leisure in your life, in, in a constructive, in a spiritual way. See, when you're overworking, over stress, then you begin to feel entitled. You begin to say, I deserved a little something here. I deserve a little fun here. And that's exactly where the enemy wants to come in. But the goal of sin is not to provide you a good time ultimately. The goal of sin is to sever you from a relationship with God and all that he has for you. Sin's goal is sin. And sin breeds sin. Let's continue to read the story here in verse 6. It says, so David sent his word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When David realized the consequences of his sin, he tried to fix it. Bathsheba was pregnant and he said, Oh my goodness, this is embarrassing. Can you imagine if the army finds out that while they're there fighting battles, I'm over here sleeping around and and, and there's a baby? Can you imagine when the people find out that that the king took somebody else's wife? What an embarrassing thing that is. What a terrible thing. So David began to devise a plan to, to mitigate the consequences of his adultery. And let me just stop here for a minute. Here's a sign that someone hasn't repented. When someone is more concerned about mitigating the consequences of their sin than about facing their sin they haven't repented yet when someone is more concerned about hiding what they did than about bringing it into the light so that god can do what he needs to do they haven't repented and david certainly had not repented he was Uh, He brought Bathsheba's husband back from the battle. His thinking was, if I bring Uriah back and I send him home, he'll go and sleep with his wife and then he'll think it's his baby and everything's gonna be okay. That's that's how sin works in the mind. And and so uh, it's an incredible thing that a person will go to such lengths to hide her sin or his sin. It's crazy how a person will abuse their authority to cover up. Let me tell you, when you don't come clean with your sin before God and before others, you will often resort to lies. When you try to hide your sin, you begin to lie, and one lie leads to another lie. You know what's the difficult thing about lying? Is sometimes you can't remember what you said, and it just gets twisted, and it gets complicated. You know the beautiful thing about telling the truth is you don't have to remember what you said, because it's the truth. David chose to lie. Imagine his frustration when Uriah wouldn't go home. Uriah stayed at the king's palace. He came and and saw David because David was his king, and and David sends him home to go uh, with his wife, and and he refuses to go. And why does he refuse to go? He says, look, I can't go home and sleep with my wife when, when the army's out there sleeping in tents, when the ark of the Lord is out there. Uriah was more righteous than David at this moment. You, you would think that David would have snapped and he said, oh my goodness, what am I doing? You're right. I've done wrong. You would have, think that, you would have thought that, that, that right now David could repent from his sin, but, but he doesn't because there's something that sin does to your heart when you don't confess it, that it begins to hearten your heart and it begins to distort your view. And so David resorts to the next thing, the most horrible thing that he could have committed, he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a letter in his hand. And the letter in his hand has instructions for his commander to put him at the front of battle. And when the battle gets the fiercest, to retreat and expose Uriah so that the enemy will kill him. Can you imagine the betrayal? This is a loyal, military commander, he's done nothing wrong. He's been faithful to his king, to his God, to his commander, and here he's carrying his hand the instructions for his own murder, because that's what it was, murder and deceit. How can a man like David go so dark? How can someone that is called a man after God's own heart commit such sin? How can someone who loves to worship God and he dances and sings before the Lord and, and he leads God's people in worship and, and in rejoicing? How can someone, from one day to the other, go to such lengths? I I was very saddened this weekend when I when I read uh, an article about a a Christian uh, speaker that when my Oldest children were in the student ministry. they got to hear him speak at big conferences he He was an author, he wrote books about relationships and and about dating and and he was so influential in a lot of students' lives and then this weekend, I found out that he had renounced his writings, not only his writings but his faith in Christ. He said, "I'm no longer a Christian." and his latest Instagram post was not a Bible verse but was his participation in the Vancouver Gay Pride Parade. And I think, how can someone that is so close to the Bible, how can someone that has been so used by God go so far in their spiritual life? And I'm reminded as I think about this that, that when someone falls away that I'm not able to point the finger at them and say, too bad for you, I'm better than you. I can't do that. Because I realize, that there but for the grace of God go I. I realize that if I haven't fallen, it's because of the grace of God. It's not because I'm good or because I'm holy or because I'm better than anybody else. And I realized that David didn't wake up one day and say, look, today I'm going to commit adultery and murder. It's on my to-do list. No, David gave way to lust. And lust gave way to adultery. And adultery gave way to lies and manipulation and lies and manipulation gave way to murder. And if it could happen to David, it could happen to me. So much of this could have been avoided. If David had repented early on, if David had come clean before God and others, this fierce snowball of sin could have have stopped. But David tried to fix his own problem and he only made it worse. Anytime that you and I try to fix our own sin problem, we will only make it worse. The best thing that we can do with our sin problem is bring it into the light and let the grace and mercy of God redeem us. Temptation is not a sin. Giving in to temptation is a sin. Choosing to sin is bad. But what's even worse is refusing to repent, refusing to confess your sins, and to allow God's grace to work in your heart. Fourth and final, the sin guarantee is suffering. It is true that sin brings momentary pleasure. We would be dishonest if we say that, that sin is not enjoyable for a little while, but the one guarantee that sin brings with it is pain and suffering. David got his way one evening, but the consequences of his sin lasted for years. He experienced the pain of sin and many around him suffered because of it. Let's finish the story in verse 17. He says, when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son? of Jerubbasheth. Didn't a woman drop an upper st- millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent to him Say. The messenger said to David, the man overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David's instruction was for Joab to expose Uriah in such a way that the enemy would kill Uriah, but but Joab was sneaky. Now that he knew he had dirt on the king, he took some liberties about making military decisions that he knew David would disapprove of. And anyway, if David would have said something, all he had to do was throw the dirt back on him. So. He makes some decisions that not only expose Uriah, but several men die in battle that day. Innocent men that didn't have to die. They died because Joab made a decision because he had dirt on David. They weren't the consequence of war, they were the collateral of David's sin. Sin brings suffering to others. Furthermore, now David had made Bathsheba a widow. Not only did the king use her, But now, her husband was dead because of it. The Bible says that David took her home as his wife and and they had a baby. And it might seem like everything turned out okay after all. But the Bible's clear at the end of the chapter, it says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. If you know the rest of the story, you know that this baby dies and it causes David a great amount of grief. The man died, their families grieved, but Sheba grieved her husband. David grieved the loss of the baby. There was pain and suffering. But most of all, there was a rupture between David and the Lord. David loved the Lord. He loved God and he wanted to please him and serve him and be used by him. And God loved David. He was a man after his own heart. God loved the sincerity and the vulnerability and the transparency of this shepherd boy who had become a king. But but on this day, David broke God's heart. On this day, There was a rupture in a love relationship between the Lord and David. Out of the Ten Commandments, David broke three. Adultery and lies and murder. Later, David comes to true repentance. He realizes what he does. And his spirit is broken. His bones are crushed. And he writes a psalm asking for forgiveness. Psalm 51, you may be familiar with it. It reads like this. Notice the grief, the spiritual grief that David is sensing as he's confessing his sin to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Verse seven says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. You know the wonderful thing about the worst of sin is that we have a God who is bigger than our sin. That we have a God to whom we can confess our sin and, and seek restoration, seek redemption, seek forgiveness. But when temptation comes around, it doesn't warn you about the pain. It doesn't come with a warning label about how you will hurt yourself and hurt others. It is true that God forgives. It is true that grace redeems, but it's also true that sin causes pain and suffering. We deceive ourselves if we think that it doesn't. When you choose to sin, you're choosing to hurt yourself and to hurt others. That's the one thing that sin guarantees. I read a quote this week from Pastor Tim Keller, and I think it, it's right on point. He says, sin always begins with the character assassination of God. I thought about that, and it's so true. Because God is holy and good and faithful. That's who God is. And in his goodness and faithfulness and holiness, he's told us what he expects from us, what kind of lives he expects, what he wants us to do and how he wants us to live and what he wants us to stay away from. And when we choose to do otherwise, when we choose to disobey him, we're saying to God, no, you're not good. You're not faithful. You're a liar. I don't believe you. I don't trust you. I'm going to do my own thing. And when you, when you began to question the faithfulness, the truthfulness, the character of God, then you're in dangerous territory. listen, Sin is not a new thing, it's a soulless humanity. We live in a time where sin is just as prevalent as it ever was. Perhaps the only difference is that maybe uh, some generations ago it it was clear what was wrong and what was right and and in today's world people are calling right wrong and wrong right. But the situation is the same. Many of us in the church are, are sitting in the pews and we're living outside of God's will Many of us in the church have minimized his standards. We've adapted to the standards of the world and we've justified our behavior. Like David, we're setting ourselves up for a spiritual defeat. That's a sad and painful place to be. David's life is a great life, his particular act that we looked at today is a warning for us. There are some of you that may be there in the borderline in today's warning comes just at the right time for you to step back and grab on to God. Maybe some of you have already gone down that slippery slope and the best thing that you can do today is just come clean before God. Repent and receive that forgiveness and that restoration. You know, this is a sad story, but it's not the end of David's life. It is not the, de- the end of God's purpose. We're gonna finish the series next Sunday and we're gonna see how God's grace is bigger. But in the meantime, I think we do well to pause and consider today's message. I wanna leave you with three points of application rather quickly for you to consider. The first one is beware of the tempter. Just acknowledge that there is an enemy that is seeking to trip you up. It's good to just know that. It leads us to the second point, and it's buffer yourself from sin. In other words, make sure that you build a hedge of protection around you, and you do that with prayer. You do that by acknowledging what your weakness is. What is it that triggers certain behaviors in your life? Just be honest with yourself. Get some accountability around you. Get people around you that know you and that you can trust and say, look, this is what I struggle with. I need you to pray for me. And thirdly, believe in the grace of God. Listen, the way we have victory in our Christian life is not by trying harder. It's not when you tried really hard to be holy that you have victory. The way you have victory in your life is by relying on God's grace. It is by trusting him and saying, God, I'm weak. I can't do this, but I know you can. And so I throw myself in your arms and I want your grace to sustain me. And when I fall, I want your grace to restore me. I want your grace to, to do a new work in my life. Will you believe in the grace of God to do that in your life? There are two ways to end the life of sin. Some end dead in a prison cell, others will sing again like David. What will it be for you? Would you stand with me and bow your head in prayer? As your heads are bowed and you pray, and you think about what God has said to you today, perhaps, What you need to do in response to God's word today is to trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord for the first time in your life. What you need is a relationship with God that you've never really had. Maybe you've tried to be good, maybe you haven't even tried and you've been stumbling and falling and hurting. And today you need to meet the chain breaker the rescuer, the savior who loves you and wants you to have abundant life. Today you can say to him in in the quietness of your heart, you can say, God, I received your gift at the cross and the resurrection. I want you to be my Lord and savior. I will follow you. I will trust you. Maybe today is a day of repentance for you. Maybe you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit today that there's sin in your life. It could be, quote unquote, small, a lie, a habit, greed, lust, prejudice. Or maybe it's a big one. Either way, You can confess it right now before God, and you can receive his forgiveness. Maybe there's something else that God is leading you to do, to take steps to trust him in specific ways, to guard yourself, so that you don't go down that slippery slope that will disconnect you from him and will hurt you and others. Whatever it is that the Spirit is telling you in your heart, then trust him. Father, I trust your Spirit to be at work right now and I pray that you will do the work, that you'll give us the faith and the obedience to follow through, We release our anxiety, our struggles, our weakness, to you, and we receive your power and your grace, your forgiveness, your redemption in the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus. As we sing, continue to respond to God's word in your heart. If you want to come and kneel at the front, you're welcome to do so. If you'd like to pray with me, I'll be up here at the front as well. This is the time between you and God to respond to his word.